but the whole thing is a fiction, a myth. It has nothing to do with reality. You miss the biggest elephant in the room in your model. You assumed it away. Elephant? What elephant? I don't see the elephant. It's not in my model. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. Today, we're speaking with Anat Admati. She's a professor of finance and economics at Stanford University, and she spent a ton of her time and energy writing and thinking about capitalism. What are the challenges? What are the benefits? And how can we use a capitalist system to benefit us more than it perhaps is today? And so with that, I'll let Anat take it over. Anat, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. so, yeah, um, while, while I'm preparing, also we were talking a bit off camera, um, you are a dot connector. And my, my first question I want to know is, have you always been like that? You know, what got you interested in this world of the most intense of jigsaw puzzles? Like, what's your kind of personal journey been before we get into all this technical stuff? So my personal journey is I studied math. I loved math. <clears throat> and I was good at math. And that's what I did. I was even a little bit... Uh, arrogant over social sciences because I was in math and math was pretty and abstract. And, but, you know, I got to the point where it's sort of in college level math courses, I kind of knew my future will not be in math. And I was a very romantic, you know, young person hmm. thinking, well, I, you know, I, I will love math, but, you know, I, I'm not good enough for math. You know, it's like in these romantic terms, you know, I, I need to find yeah. something else. And uh, so I, maybe I would do applied math. So it was like, and then I got the opportunity to go to graduate school, to a PhD program at Yale, uh, sort of in last minute. And I got in and it was kind of like, think later what you want to do. And um, so I was thinking of various fields of applied math, of you know, optimization, statistics, uh, probability. And then I took economics courses for the first time. Now, I thought economics was more interesting because there was interactions between people, at least in these sort of models that mm -hmm. we think about, about some people know more than others and how do they, you know, how do prices come about, all of that. And I ended up meeting a professor who was uh, a financial economist. And that was a time in the, in the 80s that the financial markets were exploding and there were new financial innovations. And it was all kind of exciting. It was an exciting part of economics to, to study finance. So I studied, so I, I wrote a PhD and I get a job at Stanford Business School. And, and here I am. At first, I wasn't quite teaching finance because I didn't know kind of practical finance or I didn't feel like I was really committed to finance. Maybe I just wanted to think about other things. And I did work in the beginning on, you know, bargaining and other kinds of, of more abstract problems, but I'm, I'm a theorist. I would write mathematical model and analyze the math, and then there would be all these math, and then there would be mm -hmm. some language trying to understand something, the way microeconomists do it. So as a microeconomist, micro meaning not modeling the entire economy, which involves heroic assumptions, and it's a bunch of stories, and we can get to that later, but, uh, but, uh, but just modeling in the small uh, interactions or financial markets, it's still a little part of the economy. But I was under the impression for all these years, and then I was teaching corporate finance to students at Stanford, people who are going to do startups, engineers, and MBAs, um, 
and you know, doing research and being an academic. And it's it's a bubble. It's a real bubble. So my awakening was really a, a, the financial crisis of 2007-9. That really shook me up because I never paid attention to banking. I wasn't a banking expert. So even within finance and within economics, there are, you know, 10 different sub assets. There's a labor economist mm-hmm. and a macro economist and, 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 you know, all these different brands. And so banking, money and banking is like a course experts, set of papers, they refer to one another. Every world is like a little, a little silo. And I didn't look into banking. What, you know, I teach corporate finance. A bank, a bank is a corporation. So what kind of corporation is a bank? And why is the system like taking the whole world down, you know, suddenly because the Lehman Brothers is bankrupt. And even before that, you know, Bear Stearns, all these events. So what is going on and how does this connect or not? to the corporate finance that I'm teaching my students, that I'm living and breathing. The experience was really falling into a rabbit hole. I mean, I can't describe it any differently. It was like, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, things get curiouser and curiouser. This uh-huh. was like, what? What? What are you saying? And I start basically reading things at all levels. At the academic level, I can read the math and the fancy models coming out of the Fed or coming out of academic departments. I can read the newspaper and the way, you know, some journalist is explaining things. And I'm like, whoa, am I, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense to me. And so a lot of things people were saying were just, I mean, I'm using a term that sometimes I quote Paul Volcker uh, because he was such a big shot. Um, Previous Federal Reserve hero, tall guy, you know, hero of the 70s and inflation killing or whatever, Paul Volcker. He said uh, to a senator at some point in 2010, uh, you know, when you want to do this or that in you know, banking regulation, they're going to say, oh, credit and growth will suffer if you do that. You know, they'll threaten you. It's all bullshit, he said. Now, I was in Davos with all the big shots, Martin Wolf moderating a discussion. I know you interviewed him, a good friend. Um, and I, I get five minutes to talk, and there's a CEO and a chair of a major international bank there, and me and Paul Singer, a hedge fund manager, kind of in an Oxford debate about the financial system. And I had my five minutes, and I kind of said my thing, said, no, the financial system is not safer. Sorry, you you missed the opportunity and we still have opportunities. Uh, and I'll quote, uh, now you're going to hear from some banker that, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, I had to quote Paul Volcker, it's all bullshit. And I can explain why if you give me more time. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of bullshit. I, I was shocked. Okay, well, that's wrong. That's misleading. That's a myth. You know, so we wrote a paper in 2010, four of us, called Fallacies, Irrelevant Facts and Myths. So these are three different kinds of flawed claims people make. Some of them are just false or fallacious. In other words, they have a logical, basic problem with them. Some are just true but misleading, true but irrelevant. In other words, you just told me something that is not relevant to this debate that we're having. And the other is myths, which is just a story. It's not logically flawed, just based on bad assumptions. So you assumed something, you derived something, maybe using fancy math, uh, but the whole thing is a fiction, a myth. It has nothing to do with reality. You missed the biggest elephant in the room in your model. You assumed it away. Elephant? What elephant? I don't see the elephant. It's not in my model. The elephant is not in my model. It's the most important thing. It's not in your model. How can you tell me what to do based on this model? So I saw all the kinds of nonsense 
in this debate. And this mattered. In other words, there was a financial crisis and people actually, real people, got harmed. And then all these people in this system, some of whom don't know what they're saying and they're just quoting other people or it, it, it sounds right to them. They don't really understand. I don't know what goes on in people's brains. And some, who knows what, why they say what they say. I can't really tell why people say what they say. I can only say, hey, that's wrong. Hey, that's misleading. Now, of course, somebody with power has to listen to that. <laughs> what if they don't? <laughs> so I met the politics. So I just decided to speak up because I felt that, you know, this system is dangerous and it can cause serious harm. And the way they said they were reforming it was based on flawed analysis of the situation, on uh, the collection of all the nonsense that people were saying, who wanted to maintain the status quo pretty much and wanted to confuse everybody else into thinking that they got it better. And they're lying to us. And so I wanted to expose that. Now, you know, I learned in this process, in the political process that I got involved in, in advocacy that I got involved in, it's very difficult in an area like banking because it's so obscure, because it's so confusing to people, because there's so many narratives around it. It's very difficult to straighten that out. And, you know, if I write a book at the lowest level that some reviewer called a book on banking regulation you can take to the beach, how entertaining can you make a book that's a textbook? You hide the fact that it's a textbook. It's non-technical and totally accessible and lives half in the footnotes and all of it very accessible. If you read only what you need to read, you know, my co-author's spouse who's a Latin teacher read it. You know, people can understand it. When I asked a friend in the banking sector, very experienced in banking sector, who advised me to write this book after a whole year of trying to write op-eds and petitions and other things that went nowhere because they didn't want to listen to me. I said, well, who would I write my book to? It, he's a little bit of a dirty old man. So he said, write it for their girlfriends. I mean, the girlfriends would have to actually read it to say, hey, I just read in a book that what you just told me, you know, what you told that politician is wrong, you know. Yeah. Good luck to me. So I did write that book. It took a year and a half with a co-author, a German co-author, academic, academic as well. And I went out there to try to explain to whoever would listen. And some would listen and some wouldn't. And, um, you know, I spent six years doing that. And then I went back to academia to be a sort of a broad-based teacher uh, and, and, you know, thought leader, but I don't like to write op-eds, so, but I'll talk to journalists a lot, and even behind the scene, to explain what I understand. And the more I look, the more my interests have evolved. So by now, I'm, you know, I'm trying to connect dots that connect the world of business, what's called capitalism, and the infrastructure of, of uh this set of rules, the laws, regulations, call them whatever you may, the, the rules of the game. And um, and that's where a lot of our problems lie, is in confusions, bad policy, and, 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 and the way power and information play out. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a fascinating story, and it led so well into the, the day and day that you spend now. And I'd love to dive more into... Um, you know, that, that book a little later on, but what you've spoken, it, it's so elusive and yet specific. And yeah. it, it makes me think, um, this idea of, uh, neoliberalism, kind of the idea that there's this fundamental framework, almost like a life philosophy that 
permeates our culture, our lives, um, how I think about myself, how I think about my neighbors. Also, of course, the market and the economy. Um, and yet, it, it's this very, very powerful force that's in all of our lives. And yet, we struggle to name it. We struggle to call it anything, something. Can you talk a little bit about that process of like, why is this thing that you've laid out so well, so prevalent in our lives, and yet we struggle to put our finger on it and we end up just blaming our neighbor for stuff that doesn't really... So that's a really fascinating question because in the end, you know, I am, I am, I started in math, but now we're mm-hmm. talking about the way people reach, you know, what they believe. I mean, you know, we're not, yeah. you know, we're not, Culture really stories religion. And- we're not in the world of religion quite, you know, but it's in, in the world of how we process, you know, what things and the assumptions that we make. So as you try to, uh, to, to sort of unpack that. So people throw around a lot of big words. So you say neoliberalism. People, yes. you know, hold the flag of capitalism and whoever is not a capitalist is a socialist. And, you know, and, and when you look at even what these words are supposed to mean, they're very confusing. If you look at my Webster dictionary, they'll tell you that capitalism, socialism, democracy are the most looked up terms. Because they're so confusing and the connection between them is so misunderstood. You know, is capitalism, does capitalism require democracy? What is capitalism China style? What does that actually mean? So that we don't have a good framework in our head because nobody taught, taught us. So we're kind of making it up as we go along <clears throat> of the way uh, institutions work and the way power plays out in the world. And so we go by... Um, by, by a sort of fragment of ideas that that we pick up, basically. And so mm-hmm. we, and, and, and they involve a lot of assumptions about, you know, markets and greed and government. So, for example, I asked my students yesterday, I'm teaching a class that's really accessible to all undergraduates at Stanford called Finance, Corporations, and Society. And so I put before them two words, laws and regulations. And I asked them, what's the difference between a law and a regulation? In the language, we think law is necessary, rule of law. You know, we, we, we kind of think we need laws, you know, can't be lawless in society. So it's kind of a, you know, taken for granted that there is law. We can debate some of the law and, of course, all the way to the Supreme Court, how it's interpreted. Uh, and then what's regulation? Well, that, especially where I am in Stanford, Silicon Valley, regulation is really viewed as always costly and red tape and bureaucracy and all of that. Well, I mean, the difference between the law and a regulation is really just technical. What I say to my students is the issue is there are always rules. It's a question of who writes the rules and what kind of enforcement and power do they have? It could be in the area of speech that Mark Zuckerberg writes the rules. He alone writes the rules and the people who work under him. He controls Facebook entirely and whatever views are expressed, of course, the government is precluded from doing anything because of the First Amendment in this country. They can't say you can't deny the Holocaust or something like Germany now has a law like that. Certain things you can't say because free speech, free speech. Now, what happens when free speech is weaponized in other countries? All these problems Facebook faces. Bottom line is the rules of Facebook in the world in which we don't have any any government imposed rules, except obviously they can't discriminate or, they, you know, there are other laws that they have to comply with. 
But, um, you know, on, on their basic business model, they do what they want to do. They decide who comes on, who to take down, Trump up or Trump down. This ad is allowed or not allowed. Uh, information that they, you know, all this stuff is made by Facebook in the private sector. And they can enforce it. What's their tools? Well, they can't take anybody to jail because they're not a government. But, you know, they can throw you off the platform. They can punish, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, so rules are created by governments or by by other institution or in sort of mm -hmm. in nature, you know, the rules of society, you know, in a tribe or, you know, just based on trust, you know. So the rules escalate to every level of life. And now we just have to see how they work out for us. You know, are they enabling, you know, economic scale and innovation and all of that? Should we give property rights to this so that all of that is a collective decision that somehow gets made in a political process? In everywhere. So once you kind of have a basic framework, then you can begin to say, well, you know, for example, a regulation is costly. Costly to whom? I say to my students, you know, it's very costly for me that the law prohibits me from reaching into your pocket and taking your money. It's costly to me. I wish I could do that. So what do I mean costly? To me, to comply with the speed limit or with the driving under the influence, it's a rule. So the law, the traffic law regulates traffic. We agree we shouldn't, you know, we want stop signs and traffic laws and we want the policemen to enforce. Okay, so we agree on traffic laws. Now you, and you, you sort of take this to every domain, which includes how society and governments of various governments around the world, state, local, federal, other countries, uh, control their people and their corporate people. Importantly, so my focus is on corporate people and how they fit into a legal system, a political system. How does a, a, a corporate person, enabled entirely by law, by the way, there would be no corporations if it wasn't for the law enabling incorporation, mm -hmm. which used to be a big privilege. And nowadays, you know, you go to Delaware and you become a corporation second. And you're completely opaque. Or your mammoth corporation across the globe, interacting with many governments. So corporations, you know, control economic activities. How do they fit into a system of rules? Who makes rules for them? That's what I'm interested in. How do we hold them? How do we compel them to obey rules that we created in general for people as powerful institutions with a lot of information? Mm -hmm. And the challenge seems to be that the stories we tell ourselves are perhaps different than the reality of these rules, which we've decided to play the game. And as just a short example, it's kind of like we tell ourselves we want more freedom, but it seems like our system is designed for freedom for the wealthy, not for the little person. And yet to take it one step further, it, it seems like the people that vigorously support these stories and, and these um, platforms, these regulations are actually the ones that don't benefit from it. And so I, I guess, talk to me, like, why, where is that, where is that disconnect? So the, the word freedom is another big word to unpack. People, for yeah. example, say <laughs> free markets. Now, what does that even mean? What does that big you know, two words, expression thrown around all the time, mm -hmm. free market, free market, free market capitalism, et cetera, versus, you know, big government socialism. You know, that's the contrast we're presented with. Well, it's, you can't have any notion of capitalism 
equal free market without anybody sort of enforcing the contract. So protecting your property rights, start there. You know, the libertarian, what's going to happen when somebody, you know, breaks into their house? Oh, they want to call the police. Oh, yeah, they do want that. So they want property rights protected, which, you know, somebody had to give them. And um, and then, so freedom. Well, I once went to a, co to a conference because I was so interested in corporations and the law called corporate freedoms. And I thought, what a strange expression, corporate freedoms. But it actually is an important expression to unpack, to sort of pause and ask. Because in this country, so if you're talking about the U.S., and there are, of course, other countries, but if you talk about the U.S., there's a book called We the Corporations. And it's about the way corporations, as legal entities, obtained civil rights. They didn't march on Washington. They went to the courts. And one by one, they said, oh, if people don't have that right, I should have that right. So they wanted freedoms, you know, political speech freedom, religious freedom to a corporation. That's the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court decision that said that, you know, the private owners of a corporation do not have to abide by, you know, healthcare law because of their religious beliefs. Their corporation does not have to comply. The corporation has legal religious views because of the owner. In other words, we created corporations as separate entities, separate from all human beings. And it's the people who control those corporations and who benefit from what they do, like, you know, they, they, they want to say, oh, a corporation is just a collection of people. Give us the rights that people have and the freedoms that people have. But when it comes to responsibilities, then nobody's home. No person. The corporation mm -hmm. walks away. I mean, nowadays in the news, we have a lot of related issues. The Purdue Pharma bankruptcy that taken Purdue Pharma, producer of OxyContin, the source of our opioid crisis, together with, with other enablers, is now in bankruptcy court. And in that court, um, you may have heard the Sackler family, which it's a private company, you know, mostly controlled and sort of benefiting the Sackler family, big family. And uh, in that bankruptcy discussion in which the company is broke and will have to be turned into a benefit corporation to help cure the opioid epidemics that it created, uh, had a settlement in which the Sackler family threw in $4.5 billion that went to various victims. Now, who were the victims? There were some opioid survivors, people who buried family members, people who needed expensive, you know, treatment for addiction, all these people, individuals. And then there were state, cities, governments, federal government, government bodies that were also in there trying to get a piece of that pie. The Department of Justice, the state of California, all the cities, everybody had damages because of the opioids and they wanted a piece of whatever is left of Purdue Pharma. And somehow the Sacklers who have taken, you know, by various estimates, you know, $10 billion out, they wanted the bankruptcy court in White Plains, New Jersey, to, um, I think White, White Plains Court, I think it's in New Jersey, um, to give them a release from all liability so that nobody, no state attorney general, nobody can sue them for damages as people. They were not in bankruptcy court. Why are they using the Purdue bankruptcy to get a release for themselves? Now, 
What happened was another judge struck down the bankruptcy agreement, which did give them the release. And they chose that court because that judge will give them the release. So this is how you shop courts if you're a wealthy sackler. And um, what I'm saying to you is, and we can go on with that for a second, because after it was struck, some of the victims were saying, well, I was going to get $3,000 and now I may not even get that. You know, yeah. so it was like, go collect the money from the sacklers. It's abroad or whatever. So you get into jurisdictions. My point is this, the law, the basic law is unequal and unjust. And that's where it starts. It starts with basic law. So one of my heroes and somebody who's going to visit me in a couple of weeks, in the last few years, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, a judge in the Southern District of New York called Jed Rakoff. Jed Rakoff uh, has a book that came out in February 2021 in during COVID called why the innocent plead guilty and the guilty go free and other paradoxes in our broken justice system. Hmm. So this is very basic. What he's saying is innocent people, the law is written, the penal code is written in such a way that we treat certain people and we criminalize certain things that send people to plead guilty for fear that they can't, you know, that, that they're getting lesser punishment, even if they are innocent because they can't afford good lawyers. But then um, executives separate themselves enough from the wrongdoings and go free. It's unjust. And what he says as well in that book, which I highly recommend, is explains why we send people to jail based on flimsy evidence in court that scientifically is not sound. You know, eyewitnesses uh, have all kinds of problems with them Anything but DNA has a lot of problems. You need a good lawyer so that you, you won't be told you're going to go 20 years in jail. Why don't you agree to five? And they settle. So everything is settled out of court. I have a fear of what would happen in the court. And then, of course, the powerful moneyed people and corporations are able to take the best lawyers in the land, choose whichever court they want to do which thing. You know, they can choose all kinds of laws, laws for wearing corporation, laws where to pay their taxes, laws where to enforce their, con where to write their contracts, laws where to adjudicate contracts. They can choose the law. And so it becomes kind of law for sale. It becomes that money enters basic justice and that we don't have equality before under the law. A corporation, in the U.S., we criminalize corporation, even though the corporation is an abstract person, can't have intent to do something but they have what's called vicarious liability. They are liable because somebody did it in their name. So for example, a local company that is very important in my area, PG&E is a utility, it turns on my lights here, uh, mm -hmm. and it's been involved in many fires and many accidents because of its aged equipment and other things and climate change and everything else. So it filed for bankruptcy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, PG&E in a fire was implicated 84 manslaughter charges. A person will sit in jail 90 years for 84 manslaughter. But the maximum penalty for corporation is like $10,000 per manslaughter. That's it. The corporation paid $4 million. The CEO was in jail with a mask, pleading guilty to 84 manslaughter charges and nothing. And the judge is saying, this doesn't fit the crime, but that's all the law gives me. So you can see everywhere you look, Injustice, when it comes to the corporation, uh, among other injustices. So 
I start, I, I, by now I've dug so far that I'm sort of in the beginning of how to build a system that does what we need it to do in a, in the society we want to live in. So again, to your question, there are many terms thrown around, neoliberal, because we feel something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's connected to something that is wrong. But what happened to the politics is people took statements and just turned their anger somewhere. And of course, demagogues would use that anger, that unfocused anger to direct it to, you know, immigrants or, you know, Chinese or other things, diverting attention again from the real problems, from the corruption. And that's a word I started using. Corruption is the abuse of power. Is it only in some faraway countries where it's hard to have a business because of corruption? It's right here. It's just legal here. But it's corruption nonetheless. It's called excess money. And it's mm-hmm. often legal. And that's a form of corruption. You know, maybe we're not as corrupt as, as China, but the most important form of corruption here is the same form of corruption that now is most prevalent in China, which is which is sort of abuse of power by elites mm-hmm. as a sort of bargain. There is a political scientist in Michigan named Yuan Ang, and she unpacks corruption to four kinds. This excess corruption is sort of steroids of capitalism because you can have very fast growth, uh, but also a lot of side effects like steroids. Whereas other form of corruption, petty corruption, you know, red cutting red tapes for money, all of that, that's a different animal. Corruption at the top is sort of what our system enables. And to change that, you know, I think the left and the right are angry, but they are directing their anger differently. So a system yeah. is rigged, but, you know, you get somebody pretending to care for the small person like, like a Donald Trump, and, and he turns it all upside down and, and you know, cult-like um, uses uh some anger with something, uh, some angst and insecurity to to whip up, um, you know, his own cult. So you know, it's it's a spectacle. Yeah, and and we we may point the finger at corruption, but we we point it at the um, opposite political party that we align ourselves with and say, well, I don't like their corruption, but my party's got no corruption. Instead of saying like. Well, perhaps the whole system's a bedrock of corruption currently. You know, a, a lot, a lot of things that I saw, especially in the financial sector, are, you know, have bipartisan enablers and can have a bipartisan solution. It's just that mm-hmm. the status quo is really hard, and as you said, you know, people just don't look in the mirror enough and are not honest enough about about all these things. I mean, you know, you. Yesterday's paper, oh, you know, Democrats don't like dark money, but then they use it too. Okay, you know, all right, so do we want dark money or not? You know, how how works money in politics? Let's unpack that. Who should have voice? So corporations Mm -hmm. have a lot of voice in politics. So what you end up with is some form of, of power symbiosis between private sector and government. And it takes different shapes in different political systems and countries. Uh, but it then, you know, it doesn't always work for 
for actual population. You can, and, and, and sometimes you can have competence at the top and sometimes it's a good government even if it's a little bit authoritarian. That's why the corruption democracy link is not, is not uh, for Take Singapore, for example, okay? So maybe, you know, it's a little bit authoritarian, but they have, you know, civil servants that get paid pegged to the private sector. They pay their civil servants. We don't. We, you know, they'll revolve and need to make money lobbying later or, or you know, using their, their connections. And then they'll get paid in the private sector because they can't afford yeah. to work for the government. Most certainly. So... I recently interviewed um, Michael Munger, who wrote the book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? And it's it's interesting, literally just did, now we're talking about this, but his uh, short answer is no, it always um, descends into cronyism. And so I just want to ask you, can that be avoided? Are there alternatives to that process? I wonder what he means by capitalism, because, you know, what do you call China? In the context of capitalism, use the word China in a sentence in the capitalism, these two words in a sentence. What is Chinese-style capitalism? Mm -hmm. What it's really ultimately about is about a balance of power and who, own, who owns the power. So there is no way to discuss capitalism without sort of a, a, a political and legal infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so you have to talk about it holistically once again. So people say, "Oh, you know, I mean, wh what do they have in mind?" So I'll give you, I'll give you specifically. If you look up the word capitalism in the dictionary, here you told me that there is a book about whether capitalism is sustainable. What does he mean? If you look in the dictionary, you find two basic definitions of capitalism. One is like Oxford Dictionary; it would basically only talk about who owns the means of production, the government or the private sector. That's it. So in other words, capitalism is not socialism or communism. Again, very confusing terms. So somehow it's about, you know, the government doing everything, big government versus, you know, the private sector. That's the, the lines that are drawn. Once again, where does the private sector even come from when it comes to cooperation? It requires a functioning government. It requires that the government doesn't expropriate. That was the basis of corporate form was that the Dutch government back in, in the days of the, the Dutch East India Company could commit to not take their investors' money and expropriate it. You need a government that's able to let the private sector do stuff. So it's not capitalism-socialism debate. It's off. The other definition of capitalism is using other big words. Free markets, competition, corporations, you know, com all of those market-based words. Well, how is the market working? Who decides what Amazon, you know, should release to the authorities? If, is it, you know, selling stolen goods? We have a lot of robberies around here, enabled by Amazon selling counterfeit and stolen goods. So is it their duty? to check, etc. In other words, somebody has to set the rules. If you don't set a rule, then the, then whoever wants to do something and has power just will do it. So you get private ordering, you get power determined, you know, in markets. So either we decide, wait a minute, you know, we need to make a decision and compel somebody to not do something they feel like doing, not to drive fast, not to sell stolen products or whatever, and then we need to enforce that. All of that requires an infrastructure of the law. That's why I keep coming back. Um, to the law. So all of these people that talk about capitalism are blind to 
the fact that capitalism is intertwined with a political system is a legal system. That's just the infrastructure of how you will have, you know, trade and market at scale. You know, if you're, if you're in a small family in a tribe, you know, you can deal with one another, but we have a global economy. How, do, how does a global economy function without a, an interlocking set of, set of laws? And the laws have to allow corporations to go from country to country and interact in different jurisdictions. And all of those things are part of the infrastructure of how the system works. And then, of course, there's a the financial sector when the money slushes around the globe. So all of those things are mysterious to many people. But when you when you come from my world and you can understand some of it, you sort of see where all the pieces lie and what a lot of people are missing, even when they throw around words like capitalism. And they fail to connect it to the workings of democracy or the or the power of the government uh, uh, over corporations, so uh, over people and corporations. So how do we strike the balance of power is really the question. And these big mm-hmm. words and these big debates about, you know, what can survive or not, you know, will Chinese-style capitalism survive? How will it fail? We have to go down that path. But I don't know what what he would call uh, China in this language has major big corporations that are global corporations and the Chinese government can come in and tell them from today to tomorrow, um, you know, what's going on, what they need to do and stop doing this and do that. So there's less freedom, but they can succeed at scale with the help of the government, etc. So it's always intertwined. There is no thinking about markets in isolation of government and laws. Or capitalism, you know. So all these terms are intertwined, but you, it, it's become very confusing. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you, because that's a really good point um, about power with capitalism. And the thing that I find challenging to try to disentangle is money from power, because they're, they're very, very similar in many regards. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing with capitalism is it's incentivized, the structure is incentivized to accrue money, which you're somewhat in, means you're incentivized to accrue power. And so if you have mm-hmm. a system that's incentivized to continually accrue power, it descends into these things that begin to eventually not very look like capitalism. And so first off, how do we think about money and power? And then how can we think about better alternatives? So we uh, were in the narrative, you know, greed is good. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. people, their ambition to, you know, make money is sort of leading them to, you know, innovate or do certain things. So we think that is a, an engine of, of growth, which we also worship a lot. Power, you know, societies, you know, have a lot, a lot of, power struggles, you know, the animal kingdoms have power struggles. The question is, you know, in this, I call the form of capitalism, so I have a, a recent article um, that was responding to a question in a short essay, what's gone wrong with capitalism and how to fix it? Exactly there. Mm-hmm. That's where I started looking at dictionary definition just to begin to advance the thesis yeah. that yeah. The, key, the key to having things work is trust. And the thing that breaks trust is deception in all its forms. And so what ends up happening is that if the state has a lot of power because the state has power over, you know, violent means, police, you know, etc., then it becomes an issue of sort of 
you know, co-opting or persuading the state. And, and, and that's sort of the source of power. Now, money in our political system gives you that. In general, money gives you uh, power if the system is structured that way. And um, otherwise, you know, power is, you know, you could say there's a power of ideas, you know, the, the power of, of, of being a good human being. You know, what, what does power mean? Here is the point. Power is something that can be used or abused. Corruption is the abuse of power. But that is to be seen in the context of, of a society. Because you can have power over your own body. Again, you know, can you get abortion or not? Is, you know, the government tries to interfere with that, okay? Because they say they're protecting the unborn. Whatever is the argument. I'm just saying, you know, our powers are constrained by somebody. And if we have money and an ability to gain more power to get what we want, and different people want different things, then in our world, people want, you know, they want goods, they want consumption. So we have a society that, you know, cherishes and worships um, wealth. And wealth uh, is obtained, uh, legally at least, uh, oftentimes by persuading, you know, some people. In other words, <laughs> marketing is the key. Marketing includes lobbying, includes legal advocacy, all forms of persuasion. So it could be that you manage to convince people to buy or to invest in you, like Elizabeth Holmes convinced all these rich investors to invest in her blood uh, testing company. So you have a, you know, you're a salesperson, okay? Now, you know, extend that to lobbyists and, uh, and PR and, 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 and all the way to lawyers. You persuade the judge. You convince somebody to do something that you want. So the way power is exercised is through, again, the mechanisms that society has created. And then, of course, we have our own value system. And the value system now becomes, you know, do we, do we admire somebody because they have a lot of money? Do we equate uh, money with wisdom? With, I don't know, we, you know, I'm in a business school, we cherish CEOs, they are the heroes to our students, and um, they'd come and people think they have a lot of wisdom because they have a lot of power over a corporation, and, and by extension over, over, over democracy somewhat. And so that's where the tension comes now about whether corporations should speak up on voting rights or encourage voting or whatever. And they're not confused about their role. But it's because their role became so big and they became so important. And because the government has gotten so weak to just do the people's work. And weak and corrupted, corruptible. So that's where, you know, capitalism as practiced becomes crony. But it's crony elsewhere. It's crony in China where you might not think it's capitalism. It's crony there. That's the excess corruption, the excess money. So in other words, corruption can happen in different political regimes and markets can work or not work depending on who's, you know, who's set, setting them up. Are you allowing big monopolies? Are you, uh, you know, in, in, enabling a startup to actually enter uh, or whatever. So we have competition laws. We have laws all across the board. Are you able to steal wages from your workers? That's labor law. So you look at the entire legal system and it's all made of all these different pieces. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the idea of a value system and changing or not changing because when I, when I think about laws and regulations, 
I just as like a thought experiment, I can imagine any system. And if you plunk in a society that has a very different value system, they're eventually just going to change those laws and regulations. So they're kind of irregardless. They're making a collective decision about mm-hmm. how they want to live. Uh, so, and so we have a bunch of, so the world is composed of a bunch of societies that, you know, have their governments, however they have their governments by force or by election or, or, and however their governments actually function. There are individual people that can have a lot of impact because they're persuasive, because they're leaders, because people listen to them or whatever is their source of their power, opinion makers. They could be in government or out of government. And then a society sort of evolves, but it sort of has along the way to make collective decisions about the rules of the game. If it lets the, the 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 moneyed power make them, then that's what we have, and and mm-hmm. we and we unfortunately do have that right now. It it yeah. it's hard to fight that. It's possible to fight that, but you have to be focused on the right things. And one one of the tragedies of our debate is that it's it's unfocused sometimes. That people throw around you know words and labels without you know, and, and are, are allowing themselves to be deceived or maybe deceiving themselves. I don't know how, again, the brain works. Uh, to uh, to get at the point of this polarization and this talking across one another and therefore failing to do uh, what we need to do as a society to kind of correct, to communicate, to, to, to balance things properly. And we can yeah. have differences of opinions about how much safety net should be by the government or whatever else, whether healthcare is a human right or not, or whatever. And all these things, you know, we should know that we have a stupid, inefficient healthcare system. And how did we get here? You know, you can read a book called, you know, American Sickness, how healthcare became big business and how we can take it back. So we have a crazy system. We attach yeah. healthcare to employment, all this other stuff. So in every policy area, you can come and ask, you know, is this working in this area and how to fix it? So you have experts and they are across, you know, different things. Then you have political powers. Uh, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, too often, um, you know, I mean, money can be organized from the grassroots as well, obviously. But then the grassroots has to have a sense of what it is that they actually want and and how to make things work. So it's tough. It's tough to organize yeah. a society. Yeah, most certainly. And I guess I just want to dive a little deeper into because we talked about the relation between money and power. And so, you know, I'm very curious your thoughts on the relationship between laws and regulations and a, a cultural or a societal value system. And the way that I'm thinking about it is almost like what feeds what? Do the laws and regulations we create feed our value system? Or is it more important our value system feeds laws and regulations? And so if it's the value system, then shouldn't we be focused on talking about that as opposed to changing laws and regulations? Because if we continue... If if the if if the culture continues to worship wealth, it doesn't really matter if we're changing the laws because we're going to change them back eventually. Well, if the value system feeds the law, and so mm-hmm. if we think something is a problem, or if enough people think something is a problem, then at least in a somewhat functional democracy, it it can you know be reflected in 
in the law or in the court. For example, um, you know, we now have some attention, so we have to actually pay attention, and there are lots and lots of policy issues. So now we're paying attention to, you know, high meat prices, for example, the meat mm-hmm. processors. All of a sudden, they are in the news. Well, tomorrow in class, I have a friend who used to be in financial regulation, now works in the Department of Agriculture. And this is just fresh on my mind, so I know. So, you know, you go back to Obama days and how they, you know, the way it evolved and that the meat processors are in so much control, squeezing the farmers out, we're spending a lot of money on, on, on farm subsidies, but who gets them ultimately, you know, big pharma um, sitting, investors sitting in New York or whatever. So you just peel the layers out of it. But a recent article was analyzing, you know, an old article by Lena Khan, who's now the chair of the uh, Federal Trade Commission, very anti-competitive, you know, anti-Amazon big tech, um, who wrote about Obama game of chicken back in 2012 when she was very, very young before she went to law school. And it was about how Obama, this is 2012 in the middle of his two terms, as he was going to his second ter- term, how he failed to uh, make changes despite the plight of all these farmers and how uh, the meat processors in the chicken area uh, managed to, to persist in their concentration of power. And the question was, an article written almost 10 years later in October of this year was reflecting back on that and saying, well, there is a little hope now because even some Republican, look at how, you know, Chuck Grassley was interrogating this executive in Congress. There's hope that even Republicans are paying attention to concentration of power in, in, in agriculture, which, you know, Biden has made a, a thing about concentration of power. So going back to, you know, breaking the big monopolies and the, then the, uh, and the robber barons and all of that back a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. Um, so, uh, you know, is, is, a, is there a shift in sort of the views of big power? Because in the U.S. there was, there, there is a history of not liking, you know, big power, but then it kind of conflicts with this adoration of, you know, tech and wealth and, and and all of that. So it's like, can we empower our government? Can our government do our bidding is sort of the question and how to get that uh, done. So a value system, so again, if the value system is fed by by a, a view that, that money is voice and money, political voice, you know, which, you know, was the Supreme Court in Citizen United as well, um, and that... Um, and that's the way the game is played, including the political game, uh, then we, you know, it's going to be harder to hold power, to, to, to hold that money power, uh, into account. They, they, that's the sort of end of capitalism kind of marks way, sort of self-destructs or something like that. You got the, you know, the masses arising or something. I'm not sure, but, uh, but 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 anyway, if we have a, another set of values, then things can be better. But you know, is it our value that it's okay for some people not to have health care, or is it not? You know, that's a debate about values, uh, about what is a you know what is a human right. We so we believe nominally in human rights, but the human rights convention of the United Nations, you know, does define a lot of great things as human rights that are violated right here in the U.S. all the time. The right to, Mm -hmm. you know, legal defense, the right to, I mean, we have a lot of freedoms and a lot of rights in this country, but, um, but not everybody has all the rights because the rights in this country cost money. Yeah. So I want to, 
can go to jail for not paying fines. So you can be penalized by jail by being poor. Yeah. I'd like to pull back just a little bit. And if you look at our different economic systems that we've had, um, you know, in, in real broad strokes, laissez-faire economics ended in 1929, Keynesian in the 70s. This system we've been living under, and of course these are debatable, um, began falling apart in the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question I want to ask you is what's next? Okay, so I think the the system that has taken hold in the 80s Okay, so a lot of the real trends, when you said it imploded in the crisis, it was evidence of development from the 80s, which I call financialized capitalism. That's my term for the current form okay. of capitalism that we have. Financialized meaning, again, it's, it's about money and it's about the financial system. It measures things by, you know, stock prices, for example, by sort of, it elevates, uh, financialization, what's called. CEOs are uh, compensated on that. I mean, we teach that in the business school. So the, our approach is financialized. Um, the way we, we measure things is, is, is financial like that. So it's related to the money greed that you talked about before. This also happened at the same time that, that, you know, there was sort of more globalization and globalization of the financial sector. So I think the, the, um, in terms of diagnosis and what needs to happen, and I think this is coming to the fore now in some of the debates about, you know, cryptocurrencies and other things in the financial sector, these sort of, you know, disruptions of the financial sector, that we may pull back and ask, what is the financial system actually supposed to do? As a financial economic expert, so this is really my academic expertise, I venture very far now from it to connect all kinds of dots, but I understand a bit about that financial system the financial system um, includes a lot of, for example, money laundering. The financial system enables kleptocracy in the world. How do we control, um, you know, criminals from using the financial system? Now, criminals use a lot of systems. They can launder money through arts or houses or whatever. So it's it's not just... The, the financial institutions that are enabling money laundering, but it, it's enabled in a lot of ways. So we have to peel back from the way money um, is moved around because it is a very fundamental uh, basic of the financial system, how money, uh, how people are able to evade, you know, tax laws and other things. So, you know, the, the, all the different papers that, uh, that, that, that we, uh, get to, uh, see Panama papers. And now there was some, this other set of papers, uh, that show, uh, a lot of, uh, government leaders and, and other leaders, you know, hiding wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So we have, we just have to realize how opaque uh, our system has become and begin to be that. So the efforts there are very, very slow. It is has become better. And one of the things that I think will also wake us up is cybersecurity. Because what happened was technology has also enabled, you know, warfare using computers. So the idea that wars are being fought by tanks and airplanes is not is, is a bit quaint because right now mm-hmm. you know Russia can do cyber attacks on Ukraine and has done many cyber attacks on Ukraine and we are very vulnerable to um, 
to, to our infrastructure is very vulnerable. So another book I'll recommend to, to listeners is This is How They Tell Me the World Ends by Nicole Perlroth. This is a book about, about cybersecurity where this New York Times journalist, ex-New York Times by now journalist, infiltrated all these hacking, day zero, zero day hacks, which uh, started the intelligence office and the U.S. thought it was the cleverest, you know, had the cleverest intelligence. And now anybody from a basement anywhere can sell hacks and you got, you know, Pegasus uh, installed. And so the world of, of, so you can control systems from afar now. Our infrastructure is an act of war now will happen, um, you know, potentially through controlling our computers and infrastructure, hospitals. So look at ransomware. In other words, Crime and wars, everything is taking a, a new form with a mix of finance and um, technology, computer, in, you know, digital technology, which is centered here. So that's the direction. And of course, they meet each other in this sort of crypto crazy world that we have, which we probably don't have time to really talk about. And I'm like, whoa, NFT, you know, all of that. In other words, Today, after the, you know, so after the financial crisis 2007, 2008, and again in COVID, what we also enabled is, uh, central banks to gain a lot of power. At the same time, people are rebelling against central banks. So we are, we're at the point of potential implosion in that clash of money, of digital money and central bank money, which is sort of the dollars that we, you know, have, even if they're digital, they are still kind of central bank money, which is a dollar, a green dollar, Greenback, you know, issued by the by the government. Uh, you know, what will happen when when a you know a crypto exchange gets hacked? You know, there's no deposit insurance and all of that. So we have a lot of shadow banking systems. So the system is kind of getting out of control, steroids, and that is the current version of the build-up to the other financial crisis. And so when people were asking at the ten-year mark to the financial crisis back in 2018. What would be the next financial crisis? There were various hypotheses, and I already thought, and even Janet Yellen and other people at position of power thought cybersecurity is where the next uh, financial crisis and war will come from. So in terms of global tensions, I think uh, it's the opacity of systems and its opacity of algorithms and digital uh, devices that we all live on that are making us vulnerable in general, to sort of powers even beyond a gov- one government, global government. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, you know, there are very big challenges, but we, we do have to face them. We had a non-nuclear, you know, we need to negotiate contracts and treaties on cyber. There were some efforts at that, but that's equivalent to, to negotiating nuclear, uh, you know, uh, when we had nuclear weapons and negotiated not to use them. Uh, cybersecurity, is, is, is cyber weapons can harm civilians easily. And, and they do that with ransomware all the time. We, you know, it's all under the surface because it somehow doesn't get as big. But if you look into, you know, the colonial pipeline uh, attack, you know, it, 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 was, it was not even an attack on the pipeline itself. It was an attack on the payment system of a of 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 a, of, a, uh, of the seller of 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 those uh, gas and it shattered the entire east coast and you had to sort of deal with it because hospitals and and and, and the diesel that was powering all kinds of plants in the east coast was dependent on on that never mind gas stations that were stopped because colonial pipeline couldn't 
charge. It was a hack into their computers somehow, not into their the actual physical pipeline. So you can see how disruption, how much disruption you can you can have through those systems. So what I'm saying is both systems of money and just basic systems of infrastructure are very much in the hands of private players. We've privatized everything in our economy because we like free markets, but we didn't put basic rails around it. So Nicole Proroth would tell you that in 2012, the Chamber of Commerce was lobbying against any rule that would that would insist on basic cybersecurity steps, you know, two steps authentication, don't leave these open doors, all of that. No, it's too costly, they said, back to our discussion of what's costly. It's costly to them to put in a system that would protect, you know, all kinds of people down that depend on them um, mm-hmm. from, 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 from bad actors. So, in other words, our safety depends on systems that protect us. At all domains, and uh, and to say that the private sector will have incentives to protect us is 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 false hope. I mean, they have so much incentives, but most of their incentives are financialized. We need collectively governments that de- that put their power into defending us, and we need to enable them to defend us. So they need the resources, they need the expertise. You know, in cybersecurity, you know, when Nicole Porterbath was visiting me in the fall, it was like, why is the government having Team B? Why is nobody working for the government who, who, who can understand these things as well as private sector actors? So we've ba- made our government inept and corruptible, and that's our big problem, our biggest problem, in my view. Well, that capitalism, as practiced, has, under, has overwhelmed democratic governments. In other words, democracy mm-hmm. has yielded to 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 the power of, of of market. It's been told a bunch of nonsense about national national competitiveness and all kinds of other things to divert from uh, from what governments can do for their citizens. Yeah. You've been overly generous with your time. Uh, if folks, you mentioned a book earlier. If folks want to find uh, works that you've done or to keep up to date with your thinking, where can they go? I have a website. It has, um, you know, the uh, it has an advocacy tab that has, you know, op eds and essays. You know, there were the debates I was directly involved in, and then there was a stage in which I. Uh, I started thinking, what does all this mean that I failed to change policy, obvious policy matters in my financial policy uh, activism? Uh, it, the advocacy page, I was told I need to have a, a visual on it. So the visual on it has people passing things behind their back, just seeing their backs. They pass things, not necessarily money, but it's the exposing how the that the game is played, that I'm trying to devote my efforts to and explaining yeah. that to people um, so that we can have uh, a better system. So, yeah, so it's on my website. I have I have a book I wrote in 2013, whether I'll write another book or not, I don't know. Um, so right now I found the I, I hear it takes a little bit of work to write a book. <laughs> it does, it does. It's a lot of work. I don't have fond memories of being in the bunker for you and I have to write a book. <laughs> That's probably the hardest thing I did, you know, explaining to the masses about, you know, stuff that's in a $200 corporate finance textbook and much more context around it and politics without, you know, with all the references in place. Yeah, what a challenge. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. 
And that's a wrap. If you like what we do here, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people, and that way we can keep doing this every week. So we look forward to seeing you next time, and thanks again.